Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Patricia Maynardi. Patricia is Professor Emerita of Art History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and Chevalier in France's Order of Academic Palms. She's an award-winning author and scholar known for her pioneering work in the fields of 19th century European art and women's studies. This spring, we published her new book, Another World, 19th Century Illustrated Print Culture. Patricia, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. The book, Another World, started out as a book about the history of comics. Can you tell us about how it became the book it is and, and why you wrote the book you did? I did start out writing about comics. That was the first chapter, but I thought that was going to be the whole book. And as I worked on it, one of the things that I discovered was that there was a very fluid line between what we think of as comics, but what the French called bande dessinée, which means a, a drawn strip, because they're not all comics. Some of them can be tragic. And the division between that and, say, caricature, which is single sheet image, and book illustration, which may be a series of uh, drawings, but not all on the same page, was often very uh, fluid. It would be the same artists doing it, and they would be working slightly differently for different publications. But I began to feel that it was an artificial division to focus only on the comics when the very same artists did other kinds of drawings. And I make a very strong case that we should not call them illustration because illustration implies that it's someone else's text and that they are in some way subsidiary to the real creative genius, which is the other person. We don't have a good word in English for that. We, um, the French um, call it dessinateur, which means a, we could say draftsman, but in English draftsman means more of a technical term. Drawer would be the better term. So my focus grew from only being interested in comics to being interested in the various kinds of drawings that the very same artists made across the spectrum of printed imagery. And why is it called Another World? Well, because as I worked on this, I began to realize that there was a, a completely different sense of the drawn universe because these things were happening for the first time. Although we can look at earlier precedents for comic books, we can't identify them as what we would call comic books, meaning a book of mostly illustrations, drawings that tell a story in a linear fashion with a minimal amount of text. That began in the 1830s. So before that, there were no such things. And the inventions and printing techniques in the 19th century meant that suddenly printed imagery was cheap, it was available, it was 
it began to take over the world, both indoors and outdoors. At the very end of the century, you can think of posters, which began to be placed on the streets and certainly changed our visual experience. But one of the chapters is on the illustrated press. And before the 1830s, there was no illustrated press. There were newspapers, which were all text, and sometimes there were periodicals, what we would call magazines, that would have one image per issue stuck in at the back, usually not printed into the text itself. And so what, what was that like when suddenly this was available? periodical press with images interplaced with text? What was it like when there suddenly were these cheap comic books that you could read and enjoy? Um, So little by little, our world became populated with imagery until we get to today where there's almost a surfeit of imagery with everything around us, including social media. We want to get away from the imagery, whereas in the 19th century, this was totally new. Uh, it was a new idea, and people were hungry for that imagery. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specific technological advances that, that made the kinds of work that you discuss in the book possible in terms of how it looked and the frequency with which it was published, um, and also, as you mentioned, the, the cost to customers, how it suddenly became affordable to acquire these things? Well, before the 19th century, the printing materials would be for newspapers, letterpress, that's what we would call movable type. And then to add an image, it would be on a separate sheet of paper, usually slid in, not actually even bound, with the exception of books, illustrated books. But the it was expensive. The techniques were usually etching and engraving, which are metal plate based, and they're very labor intensive. What happens around 1800, and there's a big discussion about exactly when you can say lithography was invented, because it was invented in stages, but it's accepted that we can say circa 1800. The idea of lithography of of drawing an image on a stone and using that to create as a matrix to create numerous images, thousands of images that did not lose quality the way an etching or an engraving, which is metal plate, and would break down. So suddenly you have a new method which is cheap and easy and has the ability to run thousands of copies. Then you have the other main invention, which was around earlier, wood engraving, which allowed you to actually intersperse text and image because you could clamp the uh, movable type into the same frame with the wooden image, which because it would be the same height, you can't really do that with the metal, and it's the same kind of printing technique. So that's what the newspapers used. And they continued to use that 
uh, until late in the century, even after photography was invented, they were still transferring the photos into wood engraving and printing that way. Lithography would be used more in the illustrated press that was satirical, where, for example, Daumier worked there because those were full-page images. But the combination of the uh, lithography and the wood engraving allowed for the what has been called the explosion of imagery in the 19th century because of the ability to create many more images than would be available with etching or engraving. And and some of the, the specific instances in the explosion that you mentioned include uh, comics and caricature and book illustration and newspaper illustration and popular prints. Any one of those really could be expanded into a, a book of its own, um, if not more than one book. H- how did you decide the extent of the discussion of each of these in this book? Well, I was as aware as what you said, that I could have written volumes on any one area. And yet, I felt that there was something to be gained by considering them all together. And what could be gained was more of a sense of another world, of the beginnings of all of this, these images. So what I decided to do was to focus my discussion on each of these techniques Uh, each of these media on its inception, on what it was like when that medium came into the world. How did people respond to it? What were the issues? And so for lithography, I really talking about the period from 1800 when it was invented and didn't come into really common use uh, until the teens, And so really it's the decade of the 20s that I'm focusing on, which was when lithography made a huge difference because there were now images all over. And because it was so cheap and easy and uh, you could make so many copies, it could be topical. And so the uh, caricature press uh, became extremely important because they could turn out these images in a few hours. And then comes the Illustrated Press, which is really gets started in the 30s. And so in the 30s, you now have periodicals that have illustrations. By the 40s, early 40s, you have the two main ones, L'Illustration in France and the Illustrated London News in London. And that establishes the definition of the Illustrated Press because after that, the various countries all established their own. Uh, U.S. has uh, Harper's Weekly. Um, every country had a version of a, a, usually a weekly with illustrations and news. But I'm not as interested once it becomes widespread. I'm interested in that first moment, uh, first decade of the Uh, 1830s and the 1840s. And then in the 40s, you have the real explosion of book illustration. And what happens there is that the ability to put uh, the wood engravings 
into a book along with the text allowed them to actually interrupt the text and to have sometimes, say, two images or three images on a page, just divided a little by a few lines of text, almost like a comic book, with the exception that there was still a lot more text than in a comic book. And novels were published starting in France, so the 40s is the big period in France, and then uh, Britain establishes its um, big explosion of illustrated books by the 60s and then the United States later, more in the 80s. And then my last chapter is on the popular print because that goes back to practically the Middle Ages. That was originally woodcut, very crude imagery. And I follow that because it, it follows all the other media. It follows because it's popular, it imbibes whatever is going on in other media. For example, in the 40s and um, it, the, actually the 30s and 40s, it picks up a lot of popular imagery. Originally, popular prints were mostly, they were religious, they were playing cards, they were uh, political, lots of images in France of Napoleon, or they were um, sayings, popular adages, like, uh, say, the stages of life showing from birth to death. And then as the uh, literacy grew and technology became more um, sophisticated, they adopted even contemporary novels. So suddenly you find um, Swiss Family Robinson is a popular novel, and you see it almost what we would have called a, a classic comic book. But it's a popular print. It's done in a rather crude way, a lot of illustrations of different scenes on one page. And by the end of the century, there's really very little difference between the popular prints and the comics. And they have now adopted stories that are insignificant, the little moments, little genre scenes of everyday life that are humorous, whimsical, but not important. These are not like the great moments of history. And so the closing the book with the popular imagery shows how the world of print culture, it grew from the beginnings that I focus on from, let's say, 1800, the beginning of lithography, and it spreads, and then this popular wave overtakes it. So by the end of the century, you have popular prints that look like comic strips. It goes into advertising. Um, it can be used politically. There were all different variations on the same kind of imagery that had started out as just religious or uh, rural um, daily life imagery. And now it, it spread all over the world. Yeah, the, the trajectories of all of these different things are are fascinating and some of the some of the areas you discuss like comics and caricature um, are still very much with us um, and others like the book illustration you were talking about less so what what do you think accounts for the relative successes of these different types of illustrated press well I I'd like to think that it might be cyclical um, Certainly, the 
uh, graphic novels and comics are the most widespread of what we see today, and that's still going on. But if you had asked a couple decades ago, we would have thought that the comics had died because at that point they were just for kids. And then suddenly there's a resurgence and now graphic novels are for adults. So this is something that could not have been predicted uh, a few decades ago, what would have happened there. Uh, I think photography definitely took over the illustrated press. And so what we see from the beginning when it was drawings that would be turned into wood engravings that would then be published. And then the middle period was there were photographs, but they had no technology to print the photo along with the, the text. And so the photo had to be then translated into a wood engraving. So they would basically engrave the photo on wood. And then eventually, by, the, by late in the century, they could combine techniques and use photo processes and actually print photographs. And at that point, there are really no more wood engravings in the uh, periodical press. So what has remained, however, is the caricature, which, again, I would have said a few years ago that caricature, at least in the United States, was a dying art. And today, in terms of politics, there has been an enormous resurgence of political caricature. Um, so that has not died. The book illustration is probably the one area that has diminished because book illustration today is alive and well in terms of children's books and in terms of artists' books. So there's the two you might say, economic ends of the spectrum. But the middle ground seems to have disappeared. The uh, custom of almost any book, especially novels, would be more desirable if it had illustrations and publishers advertised how many illustrations were in the, the books, these novels, they were for adults. So that, in terms of the handmade image, certainly photo books are alive and well, the coffee table photo books. But in terms of books of handmade images, we at the moment only have children's books and artists' books. And so that seems to have disappeared. The popular prints, by the end of the century, had divided into at least two major streams, and one of them went into advertising, and the other went um, into comics. So I would say that virtually everything in the 19th century survived in some way or other, but not necessarily in a direct one-to-one -one relationship with what was there earlier. It's possible that most people today are most familiar with comics of, of the different um, areas that we've been talking about. What are some of the similarities and differences that, that you have seen between the earliest comics of the 19th century and the ones that are increasingly popular again today? 
Well, the earliest ones were simpler and easier to read. They, the format was invariably a horizontal format with the frames marching across the page. So that made it very clear. And the text would be under the page. There was not uh, the use of speech balloons. So it was almost classical, uh, if you think of the earlier tradition of uh, illustration, where you'd have the image and then underneath you'd have the caption. Well, that's what the early comics were like. So they were very simple and told the story in a, in a linear fashion. Soon, really rather quickly, by the Ford 1840s, the first ones were done by uh, the Swiss Rudolf Tupfer, and they are, as I said, uh, horizontal, one frame uh, deep across the page. Within 10 years, they had uh, made an innovation, and there were vertical formats as well. And then the next thing that happens is that, and this leads right into the contemporary comics, there were all kinds of innovations. You lose the frame, for example, and so the, the various images on a single page are not framed and they may intertwine in some way. The stories become more complex. And of course, the 20th century gives us super com superhero comics. And this is interesting to me because the earliest comic stories were not about superheroes at all. They were about ordinary people who often were what we would call losers, kind of <laughs> pathetic. The Rudolf Tupfer's first comic was um, Monsieur Jabot, who was a social climber and not particularly successful at it. The, what is usually referred to as the predecessor for that uh, is uh, Thomas Rowlandson did this in the uh, earlier uh, 19th century, uh, the tour of Dr. Syntax. And Dr. Syntax was a clergyman who wanted to write a travel book and his all kinds of adventures and mostly terrible things happen. He tries to draw the lake and he falls into it. So a little bit slapstick, a little bit vaudeville. Certainly not anyone possessed of either great intelligence, great strength, great cunning. They were stories of ordinary human beings and probably that's what made them so popular. And those stories continued and I suspect it was also because it made such a contrast to the high literature of the period of, uh, and, and I mean by that everything from history to religion to the high art of novels, that these were intentionally insignificant. They were good for a laugh. They were trivial. They were amusing. They were leisure time activity. and. Uh, I don't know as that's changed, but I know contemporary graphic novels have taken on very serious subjects, and I'm thinking of uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse. So that is a big change from the earliest ones. 
one of the many small moments of delight that I encountered reading your book was when you talk about um, the invention of the the little lines in a comic that indicate movement of some sort or, you know... Uh, speed lines. Speed lines, exactly, yeah, which now, lines. you know, anyone looking at a comic today, that's... It doesn't need to be explained. You look, it's you know Even something that little children understand speed lines exactly. And I, I when I was reading your book, I, I took a moment trying to put myself in the position of someone encountering that for the first time, and wondering whether any sort of internal explanation would have to go on. You know, say, well, what are those lines doing there, or whether they are as self-explanatory as they feel today? Well, what I find really interesting, one of the positions that I've taken as an art historian is that the formal aspects of comics deserve to be treated as art, as art history. And by that, I mean things like the speed lines. We don't have speed lines in drawing before uh, the 19th century. And uh, Gustave Doré is a great illustrator of the 19th century, began as a comic book, began as a caricaturist and a comic book artist, and then gave it all up because he became the greatest book illustrator of the 19th century, which was a much higher status than that of comic book artist. But he invented this idea of motion, and when you compare his drawings to those of, say, Rudolf Tupfer, who is the, the great father of comics, Tupfer didn't know how to do that. He did not so when Tupfer shows a running figure, the figure looks frozen, looks like he's just stuck there. Whereas uh, Doré figured out that if you put a few little lines behind the figure, it shows speed, it shows that he's running. And there are all these graphic signs that uh, illustrators and comic book artists invented that didn't exist before and that are a real contribution to the history of art, if you think of it as a history of signs, of uh, communication through, through drawing, through line, through color, through uh, movement, all these different things that they've never been given credit for. You mentioned the color, and that was something I noticed in the book, too, was that uh, many, though of course not all, of the images have beautiful color. Um, can you tell us about how about that evolution a little bit? Well, color, there were ways of printing in color, but even before this, you would say in the 18th century. Uh, but it was complicated and it was expensive, and so it really just wasn't done. It was just very rare. Most color that you see until late later 19th century was applied by hand. And there were two ways it could get on the page. One was that it would be put there, and it was usually women or children because they weren't paid very much. And the person who did the original drawing that would end up being made into an edition of prints would color one. So there were domiers, for example, where he would put the color on one, print one edition or one print, rather, in black and white. And then he would color it, and then he would write across it, bon attiré, which means good to, good to go, good to print. <laughs> and then it would be tacked up on the wall, and usually a woman would just like 
machine produce a whole edition of, you know, put all the red, put all the green, put all the blue, and do it that way. Although there are many differences, people are sometimes surprised that the same print, and it's not a, a fake print at all, but it just could, they maybe you ran out of red, and so you used a different color. Um, so that was one way. And the other way, which was a, a really cheap way, and that's the way the popular prints were done, was with a stencil. And they would cut the stencil for each color and just lay it over the print and then uh, pounce on it with uh, like a bag, like a, um, I guess we would call it a, a, a stamp and uh, stamp the color. And those are easy to tell because they're a little sloppy. The color always goes outside the lines and it, it pools a little, but they were really the cheapest prints you could get. By the 1860s, lithography does allow you to do color. Uh, you have to use a different stone for each color. And so uh, the process begins of doing color lithographs. The earliest ones that, that I know are um, 1830, Thomas Schotter Boyce, uh, 39, and he did a series, but they were not really commercially viable. It's really by the 60s, 1860s, that it becomes commercially possible to do this. And from then on, more and more, you're getting color printing because, of course, that was the modern thing. So you, the newspapers want to do a little color printing. By the 80s, you have a little color printing in the newspapers. Originally, it would be like one color or two colors, you know, not a whole spectrum of colors. So maybe uh, I've seen them with say green on top of the black and white. And so it looks a little two-tone, three-tone. But part of my interest in this another world is the, think of the excitement of seeing that for the first time, of seeing, say, color printing, or of even being able to buy these really cheap comic books which were not in color to begin with, but by the end of the century were. And all of this was new and exciting and modern. And in all the countries of Europe and America, you have increased literacy through the 19th century. And so you have more of an audience. One of the reasons why the earlier uh, popular prints were limited to a single image was because people couldn't read, and so there would be one image that would stand for the entire text. And increasingly, as you have a literate audience, you can have a series of images with a little text underneath each image giving you the whole story. Yeah, some of the um, of the publishers of periodicals that came to be during this time that you talk about in the book um, clearly understood as part of their mission playing a role in this um, increased literacy, democratization of education, and access to knowledge. Um, and the the social history aspects of your book are completely fascinating. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, the especially with the illustrated press. That's where you see it the most because the early uh, publishers 
of the illustrated press, both in France and in England, and they were the first two, really felt it was their mission to help working people, well, they said working man, but we will, we will extend that and say working <laughs> families, um, to be able to understand the world around them. And when you have this coupled with increased required education, at least elementary education, you're getting an electorate that maybe is not quite educated. They can vote, but they don't really have an education. And these, they were social reformers, wanted to do something to educate the average person. And so the first two of the Illustrated Press, the very first two were the Penny Magazine in London and the Magasin Pittoresque in Paris, which were both sold for very cheap, the equivalent of a penny. And they did that on purpose because they wanted the public to be able to afford it, and there was not a lot of discretionary income for working people. And what they did was they tried to educate them in every aspect of life, give them a little history lessons, a little arithmetic, a little literature. Um, and the one thing they could not do was current events. And the reason they couldn't do it was they did not yet have the technology to be able to respond that quickly to a contemporary event and put it out in a newspaper form. It would take usually a minimum of a week. Somebody had to make a drawing, somebody had to make the, uh, the wood engraving, and then it had to be printed and distributed. So uh, what I noticed was that the newspapers often were at least a couple weeks behind in terms of what they covered. If it was a really big event, they could maybe do an article within a week, but if there was an illustration involved, the illustration came later. So the idea of spreading this information through images was one that was, it was new at the time, and it's still a bit controversial, uh, the idea that you learn through looking at images as much as through reading words. By the end of the century, the great publisher of popular prints, Pellerin, secured a contract with the city of Paris to give his, what we would today would think of as uh, classic educational comics. He had a whole series like the history of steam engines and what is money and how is chocolate made, things like that. And they would be given out as prizes in the schools for students who had done extraordinarily well. So that seems very modern, except then, then the education authorities decided that that was um, uh, to give comics to children was not high-minded enough. And so he lost that. That stopped happening. But it's an interesting idea th that he was quite right. And I know that was uh, taken up again in the 20th century when during the uh, Second World War, 
they tried to teach soldiers about what they needed to do to maintain equipment uh, with uh, comics again. So the idea of comics as education is something that started in the 19th century. And the, it was not entirely without controversy because book illustration, for example, was dismissed by the literati of the period as suitable only for women and children. It was not high-minded enough in the same way as at the end of the century, the education authorities decided that comics were not high-minded enough. So there's always been this tension between illustration, imagery that is not uh, painting and sculpture, not what we would call the high arts, and their popularity, their social purpose, their effic um, eff efficacy. And this is something, again, that interests me, and what I suspect is why they have not been given their, what I consider their proper credit it's in terms of the creation of images and the dissemination of images and the function of images. I was just going to ask whether you thought that the, the, that, that attitude had shifted in any significant way over centuries. I mean, it still seems to me that there's a little bit of, uh, um, you know, that comics are popular culture in a way that books without illustration aren't. I agree. I agree. But it's changed a lot. It has changed a lot. Uh, it's still, there is still that sense in the high realms of academia. For example, uh, my field, art history, the College Art Association, which is our professional uh, representative body, is absolutely not interested in these forms of popular culture. And as a result, we have new fields, uh, both popular culture and visual culture, that have become separate fields in and of themselves because the field of art history has not been welcoming to these new areas, which I think is terrible. I think that's highly unfortunate because, in general, when they've set up as separate areas, they've not been um, staffed, you might say, by people with a background in art. So it's largely been people who are from the fields of literature who are the ones who discuss popular culture and visual culture, and not art historians who are uniquely trained to look at it as visual imagery and look at it in the whole history of the tradition of visual imagery. So I think that needs to change. I would like to say it is changing. I'm not sure it's changing fast enough. Well, I, I think your book will help. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you one last question. Um, a couple of times in our conversation, you've brought up photography, but that is not something that you discuss in your book. Um, why is that? Well, actually, I do discuss it very briefly in the section on the Illustrated Press because that, of course, is where photography intersects with everything else that I discuss in the book is, is the, the Illustrated Press basically was totally colonized by photography. 
But the reason why I did not want to really discuss photography is that I'm following out the work of the hand, the hand, the real handmade object. And those traditions in terms of art history have been thought to, to disappear. So much of thinking about 19th century visual culture has focused on the importance of photography. Uh, there's one school of thought that uh, the, all the realism of the mid to late century basically disappears because of photography. And that's why you then have artists, say the symbolists, and afterwards moving away from a, a realist image because of the competition with photography that had totally taken over that aspect of visual experience. Um, what I wanted to do is to put that question aside for a moment and look at the other areas of 19th century visual experience and to show how they lasted, survived, transmuted into the, our own period. And what I end up with is pointing out that although newspapers are the one area where we certainly have to say that photography took over completely, the greatest scandals of the 21st century have to do with not photography in periodical press, but caricature in periodical press. And I'm thinking of the um, Charlie Hebdo um, scandals. Mm -hmm. So uh, caricature has not in any way lost its ability to shock. And Photography has not subsumed all of the other areas of handmade visual imagery. And so that's what I wanted to put forth in this book. Also, photography having been really invented in the usual date given is 1839, uh, Right through the century, it was never as widespread as these other examples of visual imagery, which were dominant. So it is through a backwards-looking lens that we say the 19th century was the century of photography. And I'm trying to look at it as it was another world. And if you were in it, photography was certainly part of it. I, um, 1848 was the first time there was a, a photograph in the, in the press, and even then it had to have been transferred into wood engraving. Um, but it was not the only thing going on. Well, thank you for giving us this window into another world. Thank you for being here today. Uh, the book is marvelous. It is Another World, 19th Century Illustrated Print Culture by Patricia Maynardi. It's available in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. <laughs>